feel like uh, I might have uh, said everything I had to say. <laughs> uh, actually, I had that feeling after the first evening, because in the afternoon of a Friday, I stopped a little bit and I thought, so what, do, what would it be important to touch on over the weekend? I made these points, you know, and then I came here Friday evening and I, I gave all the points. <laughs> I was so happy to be there and all the intelligence I could see in the eyes and the <clears throat> interest, you know, for the... So, and then I went back home and I was like, oh my God, I said everything. <laughs> There's two full days left. But the Dharma is vast. And, uh, so yesterday afternoon at this time too I was sitting there I was like my god there was all these Q&A's and all, the, and all it was all said and, and then there was more that came I, I don't know if there was something in there um, and so I, I have a, a bit of the same feeling now like I, I shared everything that seemed important Oh, there might be one more, <laughs> one more thing. Um, so today and the whole weekend we talked about uh, the sensitivity and this morning I talked about how uh, in the development of practice it, it's going to be met by um, uh, you know either stability or equilibrium or the capacity to be sensitive. So sometimes it requires courage or patience uh, to remain stable with uh, things that are, uh, you know, either intense or, uh, or uh, yeah, unpleasant or confusing or triggering or. Unknown or unresolved, uh, where there's dissonance, etc. So the, the the stability of the mind that we're developing, the word in the Buddhist psychology is equanimity, equanimity, equilibrium. Um, I used also the word uh, this weekend, composure. As the, and the way I, what I think of when I say composure, to me, it's uh, it's the calm, the concentration, which I'm not sure. But I, I don't like that word. It's very charged for me. I better concentrate and be concentrated. It's more like a unification of the mind and gathering, staying sustained presence. So composure, calm, staying power capacity to remain, and the non-reactivity, the ability to feel a lot of resonance or none, and not fall into agitation or despair, or which makes total sense when it happens, you know, of course. So... Um, these factors of mind, especially equanimity, I think, the non-reactivity, the, the, yeah, the mind that can feel uh, without falling in the extremes of uh, 
you know, rejection or grasping or it um, we're developing it here uh, and ultimately it uh, it's an expression it's the outcome of uh, of wisdom in a way it's the outcome of understanding uh, the ephemeral nature of event but an understanding that is deep deep what we call insight there's a level where we, we might know, yet yeah, things are ephemeral, they pass. And we might reflect on it, that's another level, and recognize, yeah, it's been true, oh my God, in so many ways. And uh, meditation is a little deeper, maybe another way of not knowing, very ancient, kind of uh, ancient uh, kind of intelligence, that I call also maybe sensitivity. It's an, an intelligence that, that is uh, it's known, experiential in the body. And so a, a deep, deeper understanding again and again of uh, uh, the ephemeral nature of events, how we're touched and we use, that's what we do here, and part of the technique is we use every little event, uh, phenomena, uh, stimulation, we tune into it, so it reveals its ephemeral nature. So we're not going after preferences, for example, which is, might be one way that we live our life. You know. But here at lunchtime, at the moment, if we use the lunchtime as practice, then it's not so much that I'm looking for the taste that I like, but that the taste appears and disappears. Yeah? So we want to expose ourselves, really good quality exposure to, uh, to impermanence. What was straight falls. <laughs> And uh, so we create the conditions. We come to a retreat like this, so we're not so busy, you know. And we can actually slow down and take notice a step that is an experience of the lending, and then that experience is gone. That moment of life, not just the experience, but the the knowing, the the mind that knew it. Where is the person? Where is the person of the experience of walking? If you were just a few minutes ago, it's gone. And so we want to quiet, pacify the mind enough, but not the mind that is just quiet like this, that can't notice anything. It's a mind that is quiet and engaged. And so we can notice how thoughts, emotions appear and disappear, and any stimulation at any sense door. We want to have a really intimate rapport with uh, ephemerality because our tendency is to conceptualize and the concept is something solid, it seems. It presents reality like this, it's like this. It's me, it's always been me, it's always will be me. We need to dive underneath that to notice how, you know, I might have my idea about the body, it's my body, it was my body, it's solid thing in my mind but as I sit I'm, it becomes more with attention a river of sensations 
constantly changing, contacted by cold, contacted by warmth, uh, folded in this way, suddenly extending, you know, aching, release of ache, uh, you know, all this touching hardness, gone, hardness gone. So river, so the body, is it the thing, solid thing, or isn't it more like a river of sensations? That's what we're clarifying here. So it's a different view of the world. Yeah? And so there's this aspect, another aspect that we want to uh, highlight. We want it to be revealed. It's there all the time, but it's just hidden by our ideas or our superficial attention. And so we become a little bit more attentive so that reality, as it truly is, can reveal itself. So it's just a little bit more quiet mind, less discursive, more receptive, tuning in things, and things will be revealed. And what we want um, to be revealed is the conditional nature of things, how things appear because of other things, how they come to be, uh, kind of the cause and effect, the conditionality. And that particular point, I think, is very, very, very much related to equanimity. Why would the mind be non-reactive? Non-reactive, just so we know, we agree, it doesn't mean flat. It really feels that it doesn't go into opinions about things. It just understands, basically, that if that sound happened, it's because the conditions were right for the bottle to fall. Do you see what I mean? It's not ah, oh, why, but you know, it's not. It's not like this. It's ah, oh, all the conditions were there for the bottle to fall. And actually, it becomes really intriguing how things come to be. It's pretty amazing how all these conditions suddenly came together for this particular unique event to happen. Like, you know, yesterday, moving boxes and tables upstairs. Today, Indonesian music. How amazing is that? I'm sorry we're not going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> you know? And Friday night, apparently, it was on commercial street that everything was happening. <laughs> but, uh, so the mind get, becomes interested, not opinionated about things, but interested in how things came to be. So I'm talking about the bottle, I'm talking about the noise in the environment, or sounds. Or, uh, but inwardly also, how does things come to be? So I could be sitting here and really aggravated by the fact that my mind is not quiet. You know, I, you know, so adding agitation to agitation, you know, with opinions and wanting something else to happen. But if I have some level of wisdom, of conditionality, I'll know that if there is agitation, it's because all the conditions are right for agitation to be there. So, in a way, there can be a little bit more peace. And so that's a particular kind of way to be interested by reality. 
look at that. How this came to be here that I don't like or don't want or want or fear losing. Fear losing might drop a little bit if I know that when the conditions are gathered, it does happen. And when the conditions are not there to support this thing, this thing disappears or changes. Like the deep understanding of the conditioned nature of reality is what brings peace. The deep understanding of the ephemeral nature of phenomena brings the deepest peace. And so here we pay attention to this. We're not paying attention to the breath, so we're really good at being attentive to the breath. In a way we don't care so much. We pay attention to the breath so we can see its comings and goings, so it can reveal the state of the heart. You know, how is the person breathing? It can reveal the attention and its fluctuating uh, nature. And so, yeah, again, that's a particular interest in reality, the conditionality of things. I was uh, mentioning this in the Q&A yesterday. One time I was sitting there on retreat and Sylvia Borstein was uh, talking and she was talking about some something particular, some event in her life, something, something, and she said, it could not have been otherwise. The conditions were such that it could not have been otherwise. This is exactly the conditions that were there, and it led to that. And so understanding this, I don't know how you receive it, but, you know, it might be something somebody has done, people do, you have done, you know. The conditions were exactly like this, so it happened like that. And now, there's also this understanding that things being conditional, how can I contribute? What, am, what conditions, what's going to be my contribution? And it's going to have an impact on what's going to happen. You know? I can't control things, but I can certainly contribute. And so, with that comes the sense that, uh, you know, the equanimity also. This is how it is right now. And uh, try to inject something, contribute in some way, and it will have an impact on the conditions. And so here, we're, we're actually, as I said earlier, we're inducing, I don't know if this is the right word, but really, really, really good factors of mind. They're known to be extremely powerful, wholesome, beneficial for self and others. To bring consciousness in the field makes things uh, reveal their nature. And it will help clarify, bring understanding and uh, open the door to benevolence and clarity and boundaries where there's a need for boundaries and in all kinds of ways. 
So, um, a few years ago, um, when I was doing my teacher training uh, in our uh, group cohort, uh, we were talking about uh, oppression and uh, you know, uh, social justice and uh, inclusion and uh, Somebody pointed to a, a site from Harvard University. It was ca- it's called, uh, I think it still exists, uh, <coughs> Project Implicit. And we were invited to go if we wanted and test our biases and uh, prejudice or uh, maybe positive or negative uh, uh, biases around groups of people, different groups of people, so racial biases with different groups, uh, uh, black people or uh, Asian, uh, uh, Asian uh, people with Asian heritage or, you know, around size, age, uh, homophobia, I'm not sure there was transphobia in there. Different groups around uh, uh, abilities. Anyway, I uh, I went to do and many of us went and we were talking about the, the tests and the results of the tests. And so what I would do is before uh, doing the test, I would choose a particular group to test my uh, my uh, view. Uh, preconceived ideas I have. And I would think before, what will be the result, Pascal? You know? And pretty much every time I knew, I was not very surprised. It was pretty much exactly what I thought, you know? I, I thought I can do my own self-examining, you know? And I know how I react, uh, how I generalize around this group. You know? and, uh, and, um, and so there was a test around homophobia. I thought, oh, I wonder how I'm going to do with this test. And I thought, I'm probably going to be slightly homophobic, although I'm a gay man. Uh, that was my sense, you know, and I did the test, and actually it came out that I was slightly, uh, I don't know the wording of it, but slightly uh, homophobic. And uh, it made sense to me. I mean, I was equanimous with the answer, because I thought, oh, of course, you know, I've I've been indoctrinated, you know, since birth, you know. I had two, uh, I was given two heterosexual parents, heteronormative parents, four grandparents that at least, you know, uh, behaved heterosexually. I was sent to a heterocentric school, uh, you know, exposed to heteronormative uh, views of the world, stories, models, you know. So the indoctrination was really, really, really strong. But I survived. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, you know, it had an impact, of course. I was conditioned, you know. And, uh, yeah, so things are being conditional, you know. And in the group we were saying, okay, so now we know have more information about how we are, and it's really important as teachers to know that. 
So we want to offer a Dharma that is for everyone, and, and uh, you know, it's, uh, we want to do it uh, better and better and better. I put it this way. Um, what do we do now? So uh, Kate uh, Lila Wheeler, who's a teacher in our group, she she called the researchers at uh, the researcher at uh, at Harvard, and she said, "So okay, we get the answer. So what do we do now?" And this the researcher, not knowing uh, what Kate was about, what was her life or anything, she said, "Oh, you have to be mindful." <laughs> and so Kate. You know, called, wrote or called, told us. She said, she, "You know what was her answer? To bring mindfulness." <laughs> you know, so the researcher was saying, "When you meet people of that group that you know you have a you have a wrong view about, you know that you have a limited view or an oppressive view, or uh, just tune, really tune in, and go beyond your initial uh, conditioning, and just get interested." You know, to tune in. There's a there's a being behind. You know, there's 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 somebody behind the image. You know, and uh, and tune in, and and you'll see how you can reveal the ephemeral nature, limiting nature, of, uh, and find freedom. I'm not saying it's uh, absolutely easy, but that's the uh, the uh, and. Uh, and so it's amazing we're practicing uh, uh, mindfulness here. This is the places where we can uh, apply this, see what the mind comes up with as an idea about somebody and say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let's go a little f- further here. Stay open. I don't know, not knowing, interested, recognizing this humanity. And it's the power of this practice, also of, uh, as I was presenting it, you know, the recognition of uh, all the movements in the heart, the desire for safety, for visibility, for for uh, clarity, for uh, you know how we can recognize that this is human nature. And the capacity we have to uh, to recognize this in the in the other uh, that it's also alive there. Uh, and uh, somebody, I think, a couple of weeks ago was uh, telling me that. Uh, George Mumford, who's a meditation teacher, really known uh, uh, mindfulness trainer, meditation teacher, uh, was invited at some point at the Massachusetts UMass, I think, uh, Center for Mindfulness for some conference or panel or something. And the host uh, asked him, as an African-American, what was his uh, experience of being uh, uh, black in America? Or some 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 question like this, and apparently Judge Mon- uh, Mumford uh, answered, uh, "You want uh, me to talk about uh, being uh, black in in my life, or just in the last hour here?" Mm-hmm. 
in this center for mindfulness. And so, yeah, the, the Dharma, the Dharma, what is the Dharma? The Buddhists seem to have said a number of times, the Dharma is suffering and the end of suffering. Recognizing where suffering is, how it came to be, and how uh, it can be uh, dismantled or released. And so, so the application is, or implication is very wide. Huh? We're invited to see suffering in this heart here, how it's created in this little system, and how the same system can create healing. And we're invited to also see where it's at in our relationships and communities and uh, where suffering, you know, oppression, invisibility uh, is, happens, not considering Yeah, uh, Friday when I went to the Museum of uh, Anthropology, I think that's the, the thing that uh, touched me the most of the whole uh, exhibit or exhibits was um, in one of the, I don't know what it's called, presentations, booth, uh, display. There was something that was wrapped I don't know if you've seen this. That was wrapped, and there was a little story on underneath. And uh, and the way I remember it is, it's saying uh, a lot of the artwork or ritual implements, masks. Um, I'm using my words here. Uh, that you see um, when people from the the different bands and tribes and uh, nations come and we have conversation, some of them would think that it's really good that it's uh, on display and it shows you know, our lifestyle and, and culture and uh, skills and uh, uh, all this. And there's also a number of people uh, who think that uh, uh, these should be unseen, th these uh, these. Uh, ritualistic uh, objects are made to be uh, unseen and, and just come out in the rituals and they find it very disturbing that it's on display like this it doesn't it, uh, and so they were saying we decided to wrap uh, one of the maybe mask or, or object uh, to recognize this, and I was, I was reading this, and I was thinking, oh my God, I would like the half of the exhibit to be wrapped up. It would be so, such, such a, so real, so, so uh, much more, I don't know, maybe considerate or, or informative, like uh, to me, as a non-indigenous person, I would, I would learn a lot if half of the exhibit was wrapped, you know, I would understand the, the meaning of what's happening, you know, 
and uh, the joy of uh, inclusion. It's, I know it's. Uh, I'm not sure it's the exact right language, but the the I'm, I'm going to say it with the words that I have and the concepts that I have, and that's in evolution. But the it's not the right word. The allowing of of, of somebody to bloom to to be able to offer what they what they have to offer to to live their full life this i don't know how how we miss many of us that these opportunities to to listen to points of view that are so precious so precious uh, Such rich richness. Uh, anyway, so it seems to me that uh, that's the really, really the field of the Dharma: sensitivity and uh, listening and uh, yeah, allowing life to reveal itself in all its. Uh, its ways, unique ways, and uh, so this is not a place in our lives that I, I. I see where uh, calm and composure and uh, interest is not welcomed. And so, talking about the application of what uh, we're doing here, uh, taking particular care of whatever is there, whatever is, is is there, is worth it, is worthy. Everything is worthy of great care and listening. I think that's my personal conclusion, let's put it this way. So in the, in the instructions that we follow a lot, in this tradition of the Satipatthana Sutta, there are all these aspects of reality that we're invited to be uh, very attentive to the sensory uh, experiences, the postures. That's what we've done here, sitting, aware of sitting, walking, aware of walking, aware of breathing, aware of uh, the experience of the six sense doors, aware of hearing, so that can be revealed 
ephemeral nature of that event, the posture, the breathing, the hearing, and at the sixth uh, door, the heart-mind door, uh, seeing the passing nature of uh, thoughts and emotions and moments of consciousness. So in these instructions, uh, there's always this invitation to notice this internally and externally. Internally and externally. One of the interpretations of this uh, internally, externally, is in oneself and in others. So anything that we've talked about, we're invited to be aware of this inside oneself and in the other, if we interpret it in this way at least. And so, being aware of my posture, being aware of the other's posture, my breath, the other's breath, my emotions, the other's emotions. And, um, you know, it, it could easily be that one would use this here to build, uh, build uh, to harm one's uh, arm, arm, armament, or what's Use this as weapon, you know. I'm so mindful. I'm so mindful, and you're not. You know. I've been practicing non-reactivity, but I see that you're very reactive right now. <laughs> you know, and so that would not be a good application. It's a non-judgmental, uh, in, uh, uh, calm acknowledgement of what's happening. The other one is charged. The other one is collapsing. The other one, uh, there's an experience of generosity. It's coming from the other one. Our kindness, our listening is alive. It's coming from there. You know, to recognize that it's uh, present. And, And then the appropriate response is to well, in different situations, different things, but certainly to notice uh, and be interested in how it came to be, and the suffering, and the end of suffering, the relief of suffering. And so, uh, as we go back home, we're invited to do this with... uh, in our relationships, in our, what is the word, consumption, con- cons- con- consuming in our, uh, in our different uh, ways, you know, how can we, uh, how can we uh, bring that practice alive there? And uh, I find that it doesn't have to be weird, <laughs> you know, there's something very natural that can be about it, you know, and that it's always welcome, even with uh, people who don't practice, or there's an appreciation for uh, presence. I think that's what I've seen mostly, you know. My parents never asked me about meditation. They, uh, but they, I think they appreciate me more since a few years, you know. 
because of what I've been able to. You know, I mean, it's very uh, uneven, especially in family. <laughs> if it's shaken, it's it's probably going to be there. But uh, but still, you know, it's it's not unwelcomed. I don't know what they think about Buddhist practice. I'm not sure. They never asked or talked about it, so I would imagine. I don't know. I have no idea. But the quality of the presence, the, 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 you know, whatever I can bring, uh, seems like it's welcomed. It's helpful. There's two, maybe to finish two little points that I want to come back, uh, uh, come back on. Um, it might be interesting for you also. So often, uh, mindfulness is presented, and I've certainly have presented it this way, that it's a present time based. It's, it's really interested in what is arising right now, uh, what is present now. Huh? Like in the Buddha's uh, Sutra where he says, the past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist. Put all your attention uh, uh, with what is arising right now. And he says, the hordes, I think, of death are coming, galloping our way. Time is precious. Put all your attention in what's presently arisen. And all the instructions this weekend, and probably most of the instructions, if you have been practicing in this uh, tradition, you've heard of this. But um, when we do read the text, there is a, there is a mindfulness. I mean, t- just talking about conditionality, how, what leads to what, there's, there is a time. Time is there, you know. So, and th- there's a... There's such a thing as, uh, I think, somebody coined uh, retroactive mindfulness. You know, and so I wanted just to put a few words on this here because I think it's valuable. I think that in the research we do here, it's extremely valuable to stay with what is here now. But in practice, also to actually revisit events where there was no mindfulness. And often that's part of a retreat, maybe a little bit of a longer retreat. Somebody, because the mind becomes more stable and uh, resonant, resonant and able to be resonant, one might revisit things said or done, feeling more the impact, you know. So I, I think it's an extremely valuable practice to actually say, okay, something happened this morning. So what was going on, you know? I know I'm sitting here, this body is breathing, so it's very present moment based, but I allow uh, imagery, associations of mind, memory to come, and I can, uh, I can revisit, maybe with a little bit more uh, accompanied by better qualities than were there at that moment. You know, the fear that came and the shutting down or the reactivity or aggression that came or the startledness that block the to say like okay so this was what was said this was how I felt oh my god that's how I felt at that moment I can go slowly through the thing 
and maybe understand better the conditionality of what happened and make better decisions about the future. So reflecting, thinking, is not like it's not allowed, you know. It, but it can be done uh, really skillfully. And uh, I have a friend with whom, I mean, maybe several, but I'm thinking of one friend with whom, you know, he'll come back and say, Pascal, can I... He has a beautiful way to do this, and maybe some of you, know, some of you I know, know him. Temple Smith teaches. Say, like, Pascal, our friendship is really important to me. There's something I'd like to talk about. When, if you're interested, when you're interested, and I always so appreciate this, because you know, feedback given, giving often happens when we're charged. So we just lay it on the person with aggression, or it blurs out, you know. And so Temple creates a lot of safety. It's like. First, he expressed the care. Our relationship is extremely important to us. I want to talk about something, if you're interested, when you have a moment. And sometimes I have a moment right there. Sometimes I say, oh, can we talk tomorrow? I'm really tired, and I actually want to know. And then we'll revisit something. So when we were there with that person, this is what you said. You know, this, is what, this is what I heard. It was really disturbing to me, or it made my heart, you know. And then it's, I find often very amazing that I, I can actually have mindfulness when I didn't really, I was kind of half-conscious. Like, there was, and then he says something, and like, oh my God, I remember I was sitting there at the wheel, driving, you know, and I remember I thought I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, I might, that might not be the best way to say it, but, and I, I went, something bypassed, you know, and, and went. And so, retroactively, I can say, it's actually, I, I see, I had the or oh, that's so not, uh, like I was not aware of this, that you would perceive it like this, or, but uh, we're both inviting a lot of uh, steadiness, you know. And, uh, and then we can revisit events. And uh, I try to do this when I plan the future also. Instead of doing it habitually or compulsively or obsessively, you know, I try to go with well-accompanied. Okay, so, okay, next week. And then proceed uh, with mindfulness. It seems like it, it works better. I don't have to do it ten times. You know, I can do it one, maybe another time when there's a new information that comes in. It's a good lifestyle. So I'm advocating for it. And the last little point, you might not have noticed, or you might have had a question about it, but you know when we did the uh, skin, bones, uh, uh, flesh, so the way the practice is presented, these are maybe fine points, maybe they're not, but the way the practice is presented is uh, often that it's non-conceptual, it's experiential. We're really interested in experience. And so when I say you can imagine or see the skin or the bones, I don't know, some of you might have thought, oh, that's interesting that we're actually using imagery suddenly. It's not the experience, it's the images. And... Uh, so I just wanted to say that there's a, there's a value. Some, like for me, for example, this practice that comes from the Buddha, but uh, through maybe Analayu, and some of you might have practiced that with, with him, 
it's partly conceptual because I, you know, I don't feel all the, the thing, but I can imagine it. But it uh, it really helps me uh, become aware that there is a body, and it's uh, the uh, identification when I'm doing bones, I'm not as identified, you know, my bone. Right? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there are, there is flesh and there is skin and bones that is there. So it, to me, it serves a purpose of. Uh, releasing uh, identification and, uh, let's say, uh, unbalanced ownership, you know, like, uh, make it absolutely, and to recognize that there is a body sitting here. It's not just my body, but there, there is a body sitting here, and it has bones and flesh. And so, I don't know if you're, it means anything to you, but it, uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a part of it that is conceptual, and it's... Uh, it's helpful. So concepts are not to be discarded at all cost. You know, they can be useful, but they have to. It's tricky. A concept is really <laughs> tricky because we can buy into it and and live in concepts. You know, just live with our ideas about stuff and not uh, really feel them so much. Anyway, little last point I wanted to make. Thank you for your practice and consideration, and the listening, even in these many times that I've talked. You know, I'm really doing my best to contribute you know, to the event. event. So um, now I suggest, uh, well, I mean, it's in the schedule, is <laughs> a, a walking uh, meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.